0: On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we're going to be talking about a weird employment story. And when I say weird, I mean really interesting and shockingly common, not the details, the specifics. That's the weird part, but the overall view of this, it's a shockingly common situation. We'll be chatting about that one. Uh, We're also going to be talking about people believing anything. There's a new study from the university of Ohio state or Ohio State University, that says that people are, well, kind of suckers. We're seeing satirical news sites, stories that are supposed to be jokes, that are intended to be jokes, but believing them. What do we do to fix this? It seems to be a problem. And Don Robertson will join me uh, to talk about whether or not we have any interest in seeing a World Cup of hockey and why, in the past, the World Cup has been such a... We'll talk about it. Stay with us.
1: Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML.
0: Today is National Radio Day. So, I mean, how we celebrate, I'm not entirely sure. I will accept on behalf of the staff here, I will accept any gifts, any donations, any foodstuffs, any hard liquor. That'll mostly go to Ted Michael's. But we are celebrating National Radio Day here. At least I am. I don't know if Bill and Scott did this earlier today. So all the music you're going to hear today will be about radio stuff. It's a great day. It's radio. Who doesn't love radio? Well, you're here. You must. You either love radio or the on-off button on your radio has broken and you just can't figure out how to turn the stupid thing off at this point. (laughs) So you're stuck listening to us. Anyway, we're going to take advantage of that. We're going to fill your evening. Today with stuff worth listening to Uh, coming up in just a moment, we're going to talk about one of the truly bizarre employment stories that I've read recently. It involves a loss a a reformer Los Angeles times sports columnist hits close to home, but a bizarre story that led to this guy getting $15.4 million in a lawsuit today, which just, wait till you hear this story, and we're going to talk to someone who's an employment expert about how this works out, because it seems to me this should not work this way. Anyway, we'll get to that. Uh, Bottom of the hour, there has been a, a team of people from Ohio State University who have done a study that says, and I think many people will probably say, yeah, that makes sense, that it says... People these days believe way too much stuff that they read online. If you see a story online, you are likely to believe it, even though, even when it is intended to be satire, even when the purpose of the article that is there is to be a joke, people are still believing it, taking it as truth. And you can see why that may be a problem down the road. We'll talk about that one as well. Next hour, Don Robertson, he wasn't here last night. But he's going to be here tonight. We're going to have Don in. Um, Lots of other stuff going on. As always, the first segment of the Scott Radley Show is brought to you exclusively by fox40shop.com for sport and for safety. It has to be fox40shop.com. Enter the promo code Radley at checkout and you will get 25% off your order. Don't go anywhere. Don't fix that on-off button if it is stuck. Keep it here on 900 CHML. We'll make it worth your while. Back after this.
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML
0: want to talk this first segment about a strange story out of California. There's a line you never hear, right? Strange and California in the same sentence. Anyway, here's the headline from the Washington Post today that leads into this. Former LA Times sports columnist awarded $15.4 million in age discrimination case. Hmm, okay. Here's the story. A longtime LA Times sports columnist, a guy by the name of T.J. Simers, started having some health problems. He was in his 60s, started having some health problems in 2013. They originally thought it was a stroke. Then they weren't really sure. But anyway, in the wake of that, the paper started to say that the quality of his columns were deteriorating, was deteriorating. And so they cut the number of columns he was doing a week back from three to two, saying, here, we'll give you more time so you can sharpen them up so they can be a little bit better. They... When they did this, they did not reduce his pay. They didn't reduce his benefits. Everything stayed the same. They just cut the number of columns. He was doing the, the, the amount of exposure there also happened by the way, to be a, an ethics violation thrown in that's that factors in, keep that in mind. Anyway, when he went down to two a week, they said he was still not doing a good enough job. They reduced him to reporter status, kept the money, the same, kept the benefits, the same, eventually he was offered his column back but decided not to resign from the paper, resigned, not fired, resigned from the paper, and then turned around and sued the paper saying they had discriminated against him based on age and disability. They had made his job working conditions impossible for him to work there. Well, shockingly to me, anyway, a jury awarded him $7.1 million. He sued because he didn't think it was enough. The paper sued because they thought it was too much. They had an appeal at... And on Monday, he was awarded fifteen point four million dollars. It went up almost more than double. It went up in the appeal. I want to bring in John Pinkus, guy love, we love having on the show from Simfiru to Markin, uh, who's an employment expert. Uh, John, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure. So th- this one to me, and we're bringing this up. This is a uh, it's a perfect case study, or it's a beautiful case study. I'm not expecting there are too many people listening who are going to fall exactly into this case in their own life, but I think there's some things here that are fascinating and if we assume the facts that are presented in front of us because neither of us followed this case we weren't in the courtroom um you've got an employee who is getting up in years who now has health issues and can't produce as he once did uh and yet he has no intention it seems of retiring it started to make me wonder so what rights does an employer have in that case when if if again assuming these facts are true and these are accepted that you've got an employer who says you're not doing the job as well as you can but an employee who says, yeah, but you can't do anything about it. What do you do?
2: Well, of course, an employer has something that they can do about it. The risk in Canada and and Ontario is different than it is in the U.S. because the risk there is is discrimination cases where the damages awards are huge. Here, the main risk you would have is that someone is going to bring a claim for constructive dismissal and and claim for their severance. So what you can do in those situations is issue that employee – basically coaching and performance improvement opportunities now it may work a little bit differently in the newspaper context but the basic idea is you give them an opportunity to improve and if you try again and again and again uh and you give them notice that if their their continued failure could result in termination then uh you will have uh, at that point potentially the right to terminate certainly without human rights allegations standing uh, and maybe even in extreme circumstances termination for cause
0: you can't in Ontario in 2019, based on any, no matter what age they are, you can't force somebody out, right?
2: No, and that's been the case the last 13 years, right? And, and Ontario was a little bit uh, behind on that one, uh, but eventually we, we caught up to the other provinces, and in 2006 we did ban mandatory retirement, and it's it's been like that ever since. So uh, as long as an employee is able to do their job uh, and they're, they're you know, whatever conditions they may have as they get they get older, don't prevent them from being able to do the basic functions of their job. The employer has to um, abide by the human rights code.
0: Well, and that's uh, and just to be clear here, I I'm not taking the position that I want to see everybody who the moment they hit 65 get shoved out the door because I think there's a lot of people above 65 who still bring an awful lot to what they can do and still offer experience in other things. But in this particular case, it seems as though very suddenly you had someone whose abilities had started to deteriorate because of a medical condition. And again, it makes me wonder, what you described was a process by which you would have to build paper and you would have to offer opportunities. What happens if there's a sudden deterioration and you say this person just can't do their job anymore?
2: Well, I think the first question that has to be asked as an employer, the first thing that I would be telling an employer in that situation is ask the employee if they need some kind of accommodation, you know, to say that an employee, we've noticed, that you seem to be struggling a lot lately is there anything that we can do to help you is there any kind of accommodation that you need and if the employee comes back and says actually you know what I, I have been struggling i have a medical condition then you can give that employee a form to fill out to give to the give to their doctor and find out if they're going to be able to work right now and what kind of accommodations you can provide i mean the
0: key is that you cooperate with them and you do everything that you can
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: We are talking about an employment case down in the States. It's very unusual. It's a sports columnist who's had some health problems. His work apparently, we're told, began to deteriorate. But he didn't like being shoved back, being told he couldn't write as often, being made a reporter instead of a columnist, resigned and sued the paper. The LA Times and just won $15.4 million dollars. In that lawsuit, John Pincus is from Sanfiru to Mark, and uh, he joins us. We've been talking about this one. Uh, John, here, one of the interesting things about this is that his, the position that he and his lawyers took, for part of this case anyway, was that the conditions that were created by the LA Times were designed to force him out. They created conditions that made him want to resign or it was untenable for him to work there. Is that against the law in Ontario?
2: Well, what that is in Ontario is, generally speaking, a breach of contract, right? And if you have a breach of contract that's significant and is going to basically show that the employer has no intention of complying with what the job is supposed to be, then that becomes a constructive dismissal. And that could be a very complex thing to work through. But in cases where someone's been effectively demoted and they are no longer in the position that they were supposed to be in, then they have a choice. They can decide they're going to accept it. Or what many employees do is they decide they're not going to accept it. Uh, They're not willing to stay in that in that situation anymore and treat their employment as terminated and sue for severance.
0: So but what a different What about things though that are, uh, you might call them passive aggressive things, I guess. So you haven't necessarily been demoted, but your office gets moved into the m- least pleasurable part of the building or your your lunch hour is moved to a time that is, you know, not great. It's n- Nothing is against the rules. Nothing is demoting you. You're still getting paid the same amount. We're just going out of our way to make sure you're not really happy here.
2: Right. Well, there are different gradations of it, and it's it's going to depend on the circumstances, right? So it, it, it can sometimes be a death of a thousand cuts kind of situation. So, okay, maybe they moved your desk, and maybe that's not a constructive dismissal, but they've moved your desk, and now you're reporting to someone different, and now they've taken away some of your responsibilities. It it really does differ from case to case. And so what I always tell clients who are in that situation is, you know, before you claim for constructive dismissal, uh, you better be sure that this is really so extreme that you you can't stay in this job anymore, because it's it's a big step to take from an employee. uh, And it really does have to reach a, a serious level to take
0: that step. And if you get into court and it's just, hey, they moved my desk and told me I had to eat an hour later, it can sound more ridiculous than it may feel at the time.
2: Yeah, it, it really will differ from case to case.
0: And do, well, do we get many of these? Like this, And again, this particular one we're talking about, obviously it's a very specific example. I just thought it was a fascinating case study and pointed to something broader. But do we get many cases, even loosely connected, where people are being feeling as though they're not directly being fired, they're not being demoted per se, but they feel as though their companies are trying to get rid of them?
2: I probably get about five or six of those a week seriously (laughs) yeah we it it happens all the time now my answer isn't always the same my answer in some cases uh to people is that uh no that's not a constructive dismissal uh that's unfortunate but it's not a constructive dismissal and in some cases my answer is you know what uh this is up to you but if you decide to treat this as a constructive dismissal uh, it very likely meets that test so it, it happens all the time where an employer doesn't really know what to do with someone. So they figure, well, uh, we'll just take them out so out of this situation, so we don't have them doing all the things that they were supposed to be doing. Um, and what that results is the employer realizing that they're they're basically being pushed out.
0: I'm stunned at those numbers. I I thought it would be once in a while. That's a guess. That's a no, guess. No, I no, mean, I don't know if it's actually
2: five to six every but week. It's but it's It's a lot. It's, I mean, it's often.
0: A lot. Yeah. Okay, let me flip this around for just one second because, again, I'm not lobbying for anyone who's getting older by any stretch to be just pushed out or whatever else. But there are times, and I've I've seen this before, where you have someone who, for whatever reason, they are not doing their job as well, and it's not just them it's affecting now, it's the other employees who now have to pick up the slack for them. To make it, Do the other employees, they don't have a say, I guess, legally, but do they, do they factor into this at all when they say, look, your inability to do the job now or unwillingness or whatever is affecting me?
2: I think it's probably going to be the exception to the rule that that kind of change forms a constructive dismissal. Where, where it becomes a constructive dismissal is more like if someone who's working five days a week now has to work an extra day on the weekend. So now you have to start working on Saturdays that could be a problem, right, to say, well, that's not the deal. The deal is I work Monday to Friday, 9 to 5. You're asking me to work on Saturday. If you're imposing that on me, uh, that's a constructive dismissal. So it it becomes a much clearer constructive dismissal where someone's actual hours of work or days Hmm. of work are being changed. I think that's very straightforward uh, in in most cases. But if it's just I'm doing more work, I'm being forced to do more work uh, because someone else is not picking up the slack, that's probably bad management, uh, but as I frequently tell my clients, there's a lot of bad management that does not rise to the level of construction dismissal, <laughs> and it's probably most bad management.
0: It is, uh, it is a fascinating story. Again, the Washington Post, you can find it online. Uh, look up the name T.J. Simers, S-I-M-E-R-S. The LA Times has a story, the Post has a story. Everybody has a story on this because it's a really interesting case. Uh, John Pincus from Sanferro to Mark, and really appreciate the time. As always, we always love having you on here. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Uh, yeah, go go look it up again. TJ Simers, if you want to read this is a uh, and decide what side of this you fall on because it's a fascinating case. I'm just looking at this thinking, hmm, I wonder if I could squeeze 15.4 million dollars out of the <laughs> out of the spect- No, that's not going to happen. And I liked it. I like it there. I like working still. So you know, I'm not ready to claim my 15.4 million dollars in a lawsuit
1: yet. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: You ever hear of something called The Onion? Is that familiar? The Babylon Bee? That's another one. Have you ever heard about that one? I'm assuming many of you have. You are a cultured, well-exposed to the world audience. Most of you have heard of these things. Uh, For those who haven't, the few of you who haven't, those are, these two and there's others, are satirical news outlets. They are, their stories aren't true. They're not intended to be true. They are writing humor. They are, it it looks like real stories. It sounds something like real stories. It's based on current events. It's based on news, but nobody at the sites who's writing this stuff is pretending or trying to convince you that it really is true. You're supposed to be getting a chuckle out of this. That's the whole point of it. It is a comedy, comic, satirical website. But, and here's the big but in this story seems not everybody in the modern enlightened 2019 world is clever enough to figure this out. It seems from what we're hearing now, many people are finding themselves fooled a little too often for people's liking now that they are starting to read these things. They're not realizing that they are reading something that is satire. They're not doing anything to check into it And they're being completely bamboozled by this. Well, okay, so ha ha, you you got me all the rest. The problem then in 2019, to use the year again, is I think rather obvious. In a politically polarized, angry time. Some of these stories people are latching onto because they don't realize that they are supposed to be a joke. They don't realize that this is just for a laugh. They're latching onto them. They are believing the stories, regardless of how crazy they might be. And they are deciding that, you know what, this is proof that the other side, whichever the other side is, is dangerous, is crazy, is this, is that, is the other. Well, a new study out of Ohio State University has been looking at this, has been looking at satire and looking at social media and looking at the impact of these things, and it's not a pretty picture. It's not a pretty picture. Again, it is finding that we have an awful lot of people that are being fooled and an awful lot of people that probably should know better, but they aren't figuring it out. Uh, Kelly Garrett is an associate professor in the School of Communications at The Ohio State University. I believe I'm now required to say The before the name of the university. Now the school is trying to trademark the word. Uh, He's one of the authors of this study. Uh, Kelly, thanks for doing this today. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, We are, in 2019, supposed to be savvy enough and smart enough and capable enough online to find our way around the Internet and figure this stuff out, aren't we?
3: Well, I mean, satire is really complicated stuff. I mean, it, it can be very funny to, to see a politician uh, have the characteristics of the politician exaggerated, but you really have to know what the politician would say before you can understand when the exaggeration's at play. So it actually isn't particularly surprising that people
0: mistake
3: jokes when they aren't particularly familiar with the political environments that the jokes are taking place in.
0: And correct me if I'm wrong, but it se- my experience seems to be that the more outrageous the story, the more ridiculous the story is, the more likely it seems people are willing to believe that that probably is true. <laughs>
3: well, it's complicated. there. Um, when we look at the the set of, question, of of satire that we had questions about, it's really hard to tell exactly why it is some claims stick and others don't. Um, certainly, it's true that some of the claims that seem outlandish do get believed, but there are other outlandish claims that people all agree, oh, no, that's obviously just a joke. So I, it's a really important question, one that I hope we can help answer, but we don't know the answer yet.
0: Well, is part of the answer, even though you just said you don't know, let me throw one out there, is part of it, it seems as though some of this stuff we want to believe it. If we already have a preconceived notion or a pre-existing belief about either the left or the right or the politician or whomever, we seem more willing to buy into the fact that they probably did something horrible.
3: There is no doubt about that. People um, do have a sense that it's the other side that they're going to believe the false claims about. Uh, And the I we have some evidence that the more. Uh, polarized, the more likely you, the more likely you are to say that the other side is dishonest um, and and has bad intentions. the more likely you are to believe things that aren't true.
0: Unquestionably, and so if you if you were one who hated Hillary Clinton and you read a story online that said that police had responded I don't know to her house for a cocaine fueled you know rave party, there would be people who would believe that. And if you hate Donald Trump and you came across a story that said that he's taking the children at the Mexican border and putting them on a boat to Iraq to be slaves for the upper class. I mean, people, doesn't matter what, if you hate the other side, you are probably going to maybe anyway, believe some of that stuff, no matter how crazy.
3: Your political worldview
0: definitely colors what you believe. So, and, and does this happen a lot? I mean, when you study this, do you find that this is happening an awful lot? Maybe those are exaggerated circumstances, but that people are being confused regularly?
3: So what we have been doing is we we ran a study over a course of several months, and every couple weeks we would check and see what were the most um, viral fake news stories that were being shared on social media, as well as the most viral true stories. And we would survey Americans, a representative sample of Americans, about what they believed regarding these different claims. And we found that there were a fair number of Uh, more than you'd like to see uh, of these satirical stories that people said, yeah, this is definitely true. Um, It's not that everyone believes everything, but it's certainly far from zero. And part of the reason this is so important is that we actually have tools that we can use to try and help people do better. Um, It turns out satire is still funny when you know what the truth is. In fact, it is in part funny because you know what the truth is. And so if, uh, for example, social media companies were to flag the satir- satirical content to actually label it say, hey, this is satire, well, it shouldn't take the fun away from it because everyone should already know or if they don't know it, they're not going to be upset because now they haven't been duped and no one likes to be tricked.
0: Well, let's talk about so, what that in a second. I've got to take a quick break for Weather and Traffic, but let's come back and talk about the tools and whether they will work.
1: You're listening to The Scott Radley Show Podcast on 900CHML
0: chatting about a headline in theconversation.com. It's an online publication. The headline is, Too Many People Think Satirical News Is Real. One of the authors of the study that's behind this is Kelly Garrett, who's a professor of communications at Ohio State University, the Ohio State University. I'll get to that in a second. Um, you were saying before the break that if we label some of these things as satire, that that generally can be a help. It's sort of a, I guess it's a blunt force way to make sure that people are aware But let's take one step back further. Do most people, do you think, know who are running around on the internet that these sites are out there? Or is this news to a lot of people that The Onion and Babylon Bee and other ones are doing this?
3: I think that there's a a popular understanding that satire exists. I don't think anyone... uh, is going to be surprised that there are places that publish news that looks kind of like real news but isn't, uh, and they're doing it for humor. I I think that people understand it, but it's hard, as I said before, it's hard to recognize it, uh, at least to to recognize it consistently. It depends on what you've been paying attention to, to what kinds of news you've been watching, as to whether you're going to
0: get the joke. And I think it, it dawned on me this afternoon as I was thinking about this That one of the areas where this becomes very confusing is it's not often you, if you're on the internet, you may find the story and it says satire, but oftentimes we're hearing about this secondhand. Someone is either sending us a bit of a story or a link, maybe not the whole link or telling us this because they've seen it. We don't see satire. So now it's a friend or it's someone that we generally would trust telling us they saw this story. Suddenly it becomes obviously much more difficult because you don't have the site right in front of your eyes. I think that's a great
3: point. And and on social media, we know that people often scan their social media feed without clicking through to the content, even the content that they like and share with other people. They will often just scan it, look at the headline, look at the picture and say, yeah, uh, I want to make sure other people know about this. And with satire, that's particularly challenging because when you take away the contextual information, when you're just looking at the headline, that's not much information to go on to decide whether something's true or not. And so when someone sees it in the social media feed, the next person who sees it uh, thinks, well, it's been vetted by someone else. I think I can trust it. And you're right. It can it can amplify the effect and make it uh, distract people from the fact that there's a satirical force behind it.
0: It is. Um, here's the thing. It, so. Sorry, I lost, I lost my thought for a second there. That, that rarely happens. Um, you have, I, I was talking to you right off the top about, you know, I mentioned I was jokingly saying the Ohio State University. And this is a story that was out uh, last week, late last week, I guess, where the university has looked to get a trademark for the word the to be able to, because a lot of athletes and stuff from the university say, I'm from the Ohio State University. I went and looked that up because it's a natural, I thought, well, that's, that's, yeah, okay. That could happen, but it sounds ridiculous enough that I want to make sure that that's really the case, especially before I bring you on, introduce you this way and become the moron who fell for the joke while you're on here. But to me, that seems like then the easy way for all this problem to go away. If you're online and you see something that sounds unbelievable or sounds ridiculous just go and do a double check it it doesn't seem like this problem requires a great deal of intellect or effort to to get rid of if you see something that sounds crazy just double check it find out on a reputable site somewhere why are people not doing that anyway are we lazy or do we want to believe that story i think that it's a combination so yeah yes people are lazy
3: but let's let's be a little more generous than that people are busy We have a lot Um, of things going on in our lives. And while we may care a bit about politics, we don't care so much that we're ready to spend most of our day researching every claim we bump into. That's part of it. The other part is that how do you decide what is outlandish? Well, it's a question of how it lines up with what you think you already know about the world. So when you see a claim that someone you dislike said something that you don't like, um, that probably fits pretty well with your worldview. It seems to be written the way a news headline would be. And so you you go ahead and say, yeah, I think that's right. So sure, it's a little bit of laziness and we could do better by saying, well, check across a variety of sources before you share something like that. Make sure it's not just one place saying it. But in some ways, I think that's not really fair to the average user. I think most of us aren't um, trying to do harm. We aren't trying spread misinformation when um, we share satire, but we could inadvertently be doing that. And so if, for example, the platforms were to step in, it could help.
0: Last thing, if you saw something, we're pretty polite. I mean, in Ohio, you're pretty polite. We're pretty polite up here in Canada. Someone sends you something and it is, and they really believe this and they send it to you. Because have you, have you seen this? Can you believe this? Do most people challenge their friends and go, yeah, you know what? No, that's, a, that's not real. Do you think most people do that or do most people just sort of let it go? Well,
3: I, I don't know the answer to what most people do, but I will say to your listeners, you should do it because uh, challenging the people you know not the strangers on the internet. Don't, don't pick fights with those. That doesn't usually work out particularly well. <laughs> but if there's someone you know who shares something that's inaccurate and you share with them a fact-checking site, a news article, something from Snopes, you know, these kinds of things can
0: really make a difference. It is, uh, it is a fascinating story. Again, go to theconversation.com. The headline is, Too Many People Think Satirical News Is Real. It is well worth the read. Uh, Kelly Garrett, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. That is, uh, again, uh, it's called theconversation.com. It is it is worth your time because, you know, we've all, I try to do it now. I try not to get suckered in, but we've all at times been suckered into some story that we really think is true and on for, on first pass. And then we go, oh, wait, how, how did I believe that? Hopefully I didn't share that with anybody because now they think I'm an idiot because I looked like I was believing it. It's really easy. More often than not, it's and all this, this goes back to all the election stuff and everything else with the bots and the Russian interference and all these other things. If you see something, just check and see if it's on a reputable site. And if it's not, it's probably not true.
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Hour number two, the Scott Radley Show here on 900 CHML. Thanks for coming back or jumping in or whatever you're doing. Uh, Don Robertson is here. We'll get to him in just a second. Let me give you your quiz question right off the top today. This is one that if you listen carefully to the hints, it built into the question. I think you can probably figure this one out. I think you can probably figure this one out, but we will see. We'll see how we do today. We had a lot of calls yesterday. Poor Lorraine on the other side of the glass, handling the phone calls, suffering from carpal tunnel syndrome today after the phone calls yesterday that were coming in. It was just, they, we had them loaded up. So we'll see if we're as busy today because poor lady was was almost weeping at the end. She had to rub like arthritis cream on her hands and take Tylenol and Advil and all the rest. It was, it was rough. I mean, she's new on the job here. She's doing a great job, but she's new on the job. And all of a sudden, boom, we get a question that everybody knows. And who would have thought that it would have been the Hitler question that everybody knew? So many people who know Adolf Hitler and stuff about Hitler. Anyway. Today is not about Adolf Hitler. No Hitler reference in today's quiz question. Not even close. Here it is. What hit TV sitcom had proposed titles of Insomnia Cafe, Across the Hall, and Six of One before it finally got the name that you know this show by? So none of those titles were the name that the show eventually became known as. You know the show. You've seen the show. Huge hit sitcom once upon a time. Proposed titles for this show once before it became, before it got its final name Insomnia Cafe, Across the Hall, and Six of One. What sitcom was that? 905 645 3221 or star 9900, if you can figure that one out. You may not know the answer off the top of your head, but I'm telling you, in those proposed names, Probably are enough clues that you might be able to figure this one out. Insomnia Cafe, Across the Hall, and Six of One. Those were the proposed titles for this show. 905 645 star 9900. Give Lorraine a call. Give her your name. Give her your guess. We'll see how many of you brilliant folks are out there when we get to the end of the show and we give the answer. Uh, in the meantime, speaking of brilliant folks... Don Robertson, who couldn't make it yesterday because he was out setting new golfing records, I understand.
4: Well, I'm not particularly sure. I personally set any records. I did have four or five good shots, which is, is that bad right?
0: out of 60. That's, well, <laughs> you only took six? That's well, a pretty
4: we're 12 good We are 12-under, so we mm-hmm. shot 60 and I probably had 12 good ones. Oh, so
0: it was a best ball, so you didn't shoot 60.
4: No, I didn't shoot six.
0: I did. Well, I always said, guys
4: say to me, you ever shoot in the 70s? I said, every time I golf, it's usually around the 12th hole.
0: (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Uh, My son was out golfing yesterday and he has video evidence. He came about two and a half feet away from his first hole in one. And it was rolling right to the cup, he says, and it just came up a little bit short. Another two and a half feet and he would have had a hole in one. Does he video every shot? No, no. But afterwards he walked up. With oh, his I camera see. to show yeah, where yeah. the ball had stopped relative to for the proof, hole. yeah, for proof. Well, and you know, just, I think he also wanted to keep a permanent record so next time he gets close, he can see whether you know which one was closer, this one or that one. I I would have plenty of space left on my camera. I do. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's, I I mean, it's, it's, I don't golf much and it's so seldom I ever even hit the green that there's going to be very few videos of me walking up, marking my ball.
4: I've been golfing since they used wooden clubs, like wooden I thought shafts. it was like stone clubs. Shafts. Okay. Or wood, yes. Like sticks with a piece of stone on persimmon. the end of them. Yeah, persimmon clubs. Huh. And I told the guys yesterday, because every hole was a hole in one prize, obviously. It was Darren Hadar's... Uh, Sold-out golf tournament in Milton. He's a legend going into the Hall of Fame up there in Milton And
0: uh, One of the all-time greatest scorers in American Hockey League history.
4: Yeah. Calder Cup champion just, uh, and a great Dundas Real McCoy. Um, I was on a tee of the second one. I said, I've never played with a guy that had a hole in one. And I was with Brad Grant, who's former uh, chairman of the OHA, and he says, well, you have now. I'm, I, I've had one. I said, no, I've never actually... Witnessed a guy I'm playing with getting one. Played with lots of guys that had them. Never witnessed one, so I'm uh, my records complete. I still haven't witnessed one. Well,
0: um, by the way, that's I don't know if I introduced Don. If I did, then forget it. But Don Robertson, who is sitting here, is usually here every Monday, but is now here on Tuesday because of this golf. Um, So probably fifteen years, maybe not fifteen years ago. I can't remember when. Uh, Claude Julian was coaching the Hamilton Bulldogs exactly yep. 2006 2007 in there. So 13 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, I was playing in the Bulldogs golf tournament with Brian Lewis, who at that time was, I believe, the president or vice president of the team, and a couple, and his brother, who's a lawyer in town, John, John Lewis. My and, lawyer. Uh, okay, there you go. And they had a hole in one for a car competition, and Brian teed off and this was at Century Pines Golf Course and two holes have their green approaching the clubhouse so the two greens are basically side by side and we're hitting onto one and Claude Julien who now is the coach of the Montreal Canadiens but then was the Bulldogs coach was on the other green hitting to the on the other hole hitting towards the green that was right beside us so he could see Brian Lewis who generally is a pretty atrocious golfer like the rest of us But he has his moments. He hit one on the par three for hole in one for the car. And where we were standing, we saw the ball rolling towards the hole and then it disappeared. And we dropped our clubs, all of us off the tee and started sprinting up the hole, thinking Brian just got a hole in one. And the girl who was the spotter, because they have to have someone there to make sure if there's a hole in one, they've got a witness to see that you really did it. She comes up out of her chair. Now she's running with us down the hole. And Chloe Julian and his group are on the other hole running towards our hole because everybody thinks that the ball has gone. Somehow Brian had hit it and it curled around the stick. The stick was just wide enough to obscure the ball, and it was about two inches from the cup behind out of view, wow. but not in the hole. Close. Closest I've ever seen. Yeah, I've and Brian, seen as we're running, he's saying, I work for the team. Can I win a car? I was like, well, I don't know. Uh, Brent I Cli- think so. Brent Clifford who's a guy who helps with the Bene B'rith dinner every year, got a hole-in-one at the Bulldogs tournament and won a car one time. And the, he's got a great story because he and his wife had just bought a car a week before. <laughs> so, it's always the way, isn't it? And then, well, I don't know. And he won a, like a cherry red Mustang. I don't think he took the car. I think he took uh, the, cash? the cash or something.
4: I, I, I grabbed the cherry red uh, Mustang.
0: So, convertible so one? So I
4: think I'm brilliant. I am you know uh, can't come Monday, say you know I can pop in Tuesday. You say, that's great. Uh, only to forget, which I will now be punished for severely. That um, Stephen and Aaron, uh, Susie's son, and your wife, yep, uh, yeah, and Sue's my wife, obviously, and Elliot, who's ten months old, arrived at uh, five thirty this afternoon, and is now at my house. Which well, is, they're listening; they get to hear Grandpa on the on the radio. Seemingly been renovated; the bedroom has been all done up with a crib and everything else, and and I get to uh, so I, I there'll be a there'll be a payment do for better win that red Mustang being
0: here with you when there's,
4: you know, there, this is the second most favorite place. I'd
0: rather be tonight or, uh, by the way, one other hole in one story before we move on, cause people love other people's hole in one stories. This is not a hole in one story anyway, but they had a, I, I believe it was Gary McKay from the spectator he used to be with the spectator yep. still writes golf. I believe great guy. I believe Gary was the one who told me this story. I could be wrong. But he was. I, he told me the story one time that he was playing in a charity tournament or something and they had a hole in one for a car, like is the case in a lot of places. And they often will put the car on the hole so you see what car you're going to win. Well, this particular one, whoever was the organizer, didn't think this through very well. Usually the car is at the tee box. <laughs> they, they put the car.
4: I already know how this
0: ends. They put the car, a beautiful sports car, right beside the hole just off the green which of course somebody gets up there tries to just rip one to the green doesn't hit it quite right and the ball never goes more than three feet off the ground but goes hard enough in a straight line just boom right into the door and leaves a golf size dent in the door yeah that's um (laughs) that's Now we're just, it's I knew it damaged. wasn't going to end well as soon as you said it's, that. It's damaged. We'll give one to anyone who gets a birdie on the hole. First person oh, to get a birdie, gets. it had just a giant dent in the door. The do- guy that wins it says, do you have another one? <laughs> I, try, I don't like this one. <laughs> I don't like the pock marks in the car. Uh, a lot of stuff I want to get to today, Don, but let's start with this one. The, the NHL and the Players Association and stuff are talking now about a potential ho- World Cup of Hockey in 2021. I think everybody likes the Olympics. I don't think anyone doesn't like the NHL and the Olympics, if the NHL players are there, I think we all liked the Canada cup for whatever reason, the world cup didn't ever seem to do what either of those two events did. I don't know why, but would you be excited about a world cup in 2021? Or at this point are you like, "Eh, whatever?
4: I, you know, it it does bring the best players from around the world. I mean, uh, the Canada cup was always played here and often in Hamilton. And we like the ring of the Canada Cup. But because it's become such a global sport now, the Canada Cup doesn't really sell. The U.S. have got 24, 25, soon to have 26 teams, right? And we have six. So the Canada Cup isn't going to sell. Seven. We have seven. We have 17. Players. <laughs> I forgot about Toronto. Um, <laughs> they, they have won to 67. They have the longest losing streak in hockey. They do now. Um, but, you know, it It brings the best players together. But when it's not meaningful. That's the problem. You know, a guy would much rather watch a first-round uh, series between Boston and Toronto when it really matters. A guy will block a shot. They'll pay a price that they won't pay at the World Cup because they don't want to get hurt for the regular season. But they do season. at the
0: Olympics. That see that, and, yeah. and that's why people love the Olympics. Still, I think the Olympics still really matters to these guys.
4: Well, yeah, but the Olympics are twelve thousand years old. It, well, I, I agree. Mean, it has significance. The the World Cup of hockey is a money grab.
0: Sure it is. Sure it is. But
1: how do you, and okay, the players so, know it's a money grab? So how the do Olympics, you change it?
0: The Olympics are a money grab, but that's all envelopes under the table. But how do you change it then? Because again, the guys were willing to block shots. I don't know. They didn't block a lot of shots back in the day, but they were willing to live and they die pay a to, price, yeah. to, for the Canada Cup. And they're certainly willing to do it for the Olympics, and they're absolutely going to do it for the Stanley Cup. So what's the secret?
4: Well, here's the interesting factor, or one of the interesting factors in my mind is, I, I, I don't know what the secret is, and I'm amazed at hockey players. Well, I'm not amazed at them because, I, you know, hockey players are the best athletes in the world as far as I'm concerned. But they will pay that price. They'll play on cracked ankles, cracked ribs, to win a Stanley Cup, and they don't get paid anymore. Like they,
0: they you know... The no, salary is done when the regular season yeah, is. Yeah,
4: the, the, the payday has no significance in the price that they will pay, but they will play for Lord Stanley. But they won't play for some something this new. I think hockey players, and most athletes, play for the tradition. The Olympics are a big, bloody
0: deal. So if you were to change the World Cup and bring back the Canada Cup... Which has some tradition, then would they suddenly play for it?
4: I don't think it sells. I don't think there's any difference. You can call it, you can call it the Radley Cup if you want. I mean, which would have tremendous significance in in, in, in your my house. family room, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but I don't I don't see it having any more significance. It's just the history of the Stanley Cup. You know, um, senior hockey. I've, I've said it before. We used to play for the Stanley Cup till they started getting paid. There, that's an old trophy. It's like 1898. 1890, it's been played for. And guys have the significance because if you get a ring, which they all play for, you know, then you're on a winner, you can get more money to get paid, and you can dine out on that championship forever. I don't think anybody's dining out on a Canada Cup. Nobody's dining out on a World Cup. And it's a takeoff on soccer.
0: And I. But guys will. Guys will kill to win the world. I mean, people have. When I'm not even being facetious now, I mean, in the World Cup of yeah. soccer, guys have been executed when they came back home if they screwed up. The guy Escobar from Colombia, 1984, was it? Yeah. I think it was. Yeah, who got not home? Happy he scored. Well, he scored an own goal, and he got home, and someone shot him and killed him. I mean, it's that is serious. Guys will kill to win the World Cup of soccer,
4: but it's like the Stanley Cup and the Olympics, right? Like well, it's like the Olympics. Mark Crawford is- Because st- they all
0: have their own Stanley Cups. They all have their own league championships and champions. Cups. So it's like the Olympics for sure.
4: Mark Crawford, I, I've known Mark Crawford for 25 years. I would call Mark a friend. He's still wearing the fact that Gretzky didn't take a shot in, in uh, Japan. Like the Olympics are
0: a big deal. friend Friend or not, as he should. He was wrong. I guess that was that was that was a mistake. And look, that's the that's the beauty of these events, though. Yeah. Not for Mark Crawford to be living with that, that forever. I'm sure. Yep, Nogano. I'm sure Mark Crawford doesn't love it, but the fact that it matters so much yeah. means we're still talking about it twenty years later and second guessing a coach twenty years later. Tell me one thing that happened in the last World Cup of hockey. Yeah, I don't even know who won.
4: So they can't make it
0: matter. There's one other problem with the mattering, and that is... But they can
4: make people pay.
0: Well, they sure can. But once upon a time, in the early Canada Cups, especially 1976, 1980, Canada won the first one, lost the second one. Uh, In those ones, you still had unique playing styles. The Russians played a certain way. The Swedes played a certain way. Canada played a certain way. The States were awful. They didn't play anyway. Uh, the Finns had their style. The Czechoslovakians, I think, I may have already said. Now, everybody plays the same. It's exactly the same. There's so it's simply it's no it doesn't have the interest factor of whose style is better anymore. In in a way, it's kind of like the modern day UFC. Anyone who <clears throat> ever watched the UFC early on, the Ultimate Fighting Championship, it was designed as a contest of. Whose style is better? Is boxing better than karate, better than wrestling, better than judo, better than kung fu? Now everybody does Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Everybody fights almost exactly the same way. It takes some of the intrigue out of it.
4: Yeah, it does. And it takes – I mean, you've got to play for something. To to see a a sport at its absolute premium, there has to be a significance for what you're playing for. And if you can't create the significance, which you can't with the World Cup – they try to do it financially, but...
0: Money's not enough?
4: These, I don't think these guys care about money. Like, well, they've all got lots. Well, wait a minute. Now, like if you think about who's going to play for Canada, there's nobody on that club that's not making $7 million a year. So no, what are you going to pay
0: them? Last World Cup, they had that Young Guns team, or whatever they called it.
4: That was interesting. And, now, and
0: those guys would play for a million <sighs> bucks bonus each. You, you You give a million dollars to every player on the winning team, those guys will play hard, because many of those guys don't have their big contracts yet.
4: See, the interesting thing is those guys will play hard anyway because they're playing so they can get a $6 million contract.
0: And to use. prove something.
4: And if you can create your worth among your peers at that age, the The agent's going to harken back and say, he was the best player at the uh, World Cup, the uh, you know, the kids' version of it. Kids, when I refer to kids, I mean, it's like under 23, I think it was. And, and you'll find that that would be more significant. The, I mean... If you think about the World Cup of Hockey and the NHL players, and then you talk about the World Junior Championship right at Christmas time, those guys are playing their guts out. That's a big deal. The World Junior Championship.
0: Would it? it wait, absolutely, it is. No, absolutely, it is. And those guys. But again, there's a lot. That's a. That's a tradition. That's a tradition. That's now, what I'm telling that, you, yeah. Would it make a difference? Stanley
4: Cup, the World Cup, the Olympics, the World Cup in soccer. At the Stanley Cup, the, uh, the Olympics they all have significance. You can't create significance. you have to build it and the World Cup of hockey the way it was done last time is trying to create significance and it's very difficult to do.
0: What, it, what would be more what would generate more significance among players this kind of thing where you're playing for your country against other countries or have one in Canada where every province gets to put together a team or every region, if you don't have enough guys at Nova Scotia and PEI. Like we'll say Atlantic provinces get yeah. to put together a team. Quebec gets to put together a team. Ontario, I think that... Hockey Canada have six regions. They have Pacific, the West
4: Pacific is Alberta and BC. So you've got a Pacific. You could get those six regions. I bet that
0: would be more interesting to the players, would generate more passion and be as interesting to the fans. Now, that cuts out the rest of the world, and I don't know the players would want to do it, but I would bet you that the guys, the guys in Quebec would block shots with their teeth to win that. The guys in Alberta would block shots with their teeth to win that. You but don't want to be the team that doesn't win the Canadian championship.
4: But you know the World Cup is driven by the National oh, Hockey of course. League. The National Hockey League is driven by money, and there would be zero significance. Of course. Nobody would really care in the U.S. It's not, it's not so they're not going to be television. So from a pure hockey standpoint, from a Canadiana standpoint,
0: that has that has great legs. Oh, I, I'm not arguing that it would ever happen. I'm simply saying when we say you can't You would create, create significance there. You could create significance. If you find the right formula or the right passion button or whatever you want to call it, you can create significance. It's just really hard especially when... I mean, look what's happening in the, in the FIBA, the World Basketball Championship right now. None of Canada's uh, NBA players are in it. They don't care. Yeah. They either got other things to do or they're injured or they don't really care or their agents have told them to stay home. The only way this works is if you get all the best players to go in and if they all really care about it.
4: Yeah, and that's almost impossible. And if it is. becomes
0: a glorified scrimmage, I don't want to watch that.
4: You know the NBA, I forget the kid's name, the kid that wants to make the Raptors this year. His agent told him not to go and he opted not to go. He'll be a bubble player. Nick Nurse is coaching the Canada's team.
0: Yep, Dennis Boucher. Is it Dennis Boucher? Something Boucher. Um, Dennis Boucher may have been the baseball player, but Boucher is... Uh, and. Like, I don't get it. I don't understand. I understand there are a few guys who are hurt. I know what i do that, if I was Nick Nurse. I guess I know
4: what you're made of. Sunset at the end of the bench, maybe. That's the one guy, for
0: sure. I mean, look, I, I, that makes no sense. If you, if you have an injury, as far as I'm concerned, you're off the hook. But what I've heard, what we've heard from a lot of these basketball players who are not playing in this is, well, I have to get ready for the season. So, well, how are you? How better to get ready for the season than by playing good international basketball? Isn't isn't that what they're going to be doing back home? Is trying to play, but the, they hear they be playing in a pickup league. Well, if, you're, if your if Asian is saying
4: that, they don't have an he's an income poop. They don't have any credibility at all to make a statement
0: like that. That we need to prepare him. Who's he going to play with? Unless unless we're not hearing part of it saying teams are saying if you get injured we're not covering your contract.
4: But Basketball Canada, I mean, they do that. Hockey Canada do it. They insure the guys if the NHL insurance does not place. It costs a fortune for Hockey Canada, but they make a lot of money on it. But they have to cover all that stuff. And they fly the families to the World Hockey Championships, the real world hockey championships. Every year you can take, you know, your wife and your kids. and I mean, they pay a lot of money. I mean, that's part of the process to pay. You have to pay insurance against injury. So I think it's a load of crap. I mean, they, they, these guys should be playing. We're not good enough. I mean, the Raptors won the
0: NBA championship. I mean. Well, we're not, no, without any, like this is, someone wrote it today, and I don't know who, and I wish I could give them credit. Uh, I think it was just a tweet, but it was pointed out, this is, this is supposed to be the golden age of Canadian basketball, and yeah. we have none of our young stars that were supposed to be the team, maybe behind the states. But this was supposed to be the team that was going to be taking us to places we've never been, and none of them are over there playing in this.
4: Well, that Wiggins, And a couple tried. Wiggins', couple, Wiggins
0: kid hasn't played. Nope. Well, Kelly Alinek, <clears throat> who's a Vancouver guy, he tried and he got injured.
4: You know what doesn't help, though, is uh, Rick Nash is the GM, I believe.
0: Steve Nash is Steve involved. Nash. Yeah,
4: yeah. Rick Nash is a hockey player for the Rangers. Steve Nash, did he play? He, he did.
0: No, he did. In, 19, in 2000 in Australia, in the Olympics, he played for Team Canada. He carried them almost to a medal by himself. Yeah. So he's but, he, put, but he did
4: decline more often than he played. I,
0: I can't say yes or no to that one. I don't know for sure. I know that he did have injuries later in his career and may have had to opt out for that reason. I, I can't say for sure, but I know he played at times. Look, it's a different psyche. Clearly, between hockey players and basketball players, but we got to take a break in just a minute. But would you rather have basketball players go over there? Like I'm looking and saying, do I want to have hockey players who play have all the great players who play, but don't really care about what they're playing in, or the basketball players just not go because they don't care? Do I do uh, I want to watch a bunch of the world's best players who are playing shinny like in an all star game and? But they, you would think if
4: they go, they're gonna they're going to do it. Right.
0: Are we going to break? Yeah. All right. Good night, yeah. Elliot. <laughs> <laughs> we will take a break. Back after this. Stay with us.
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: National Radio Day. All the music today about radio. Don Robertson in studio as part of the big celebrations. The fireworks come after the show. Head on down to Longwood and Maine for the fireworks show. After No, there's no fireworks. I wish there was. Next year we'll have to push for a much higher budget for National Radio Day to uh, fireworks, hard liquor. <laughs> be a lot more an interesting show to be a last one. But well, yeah, it's uh, that, no. that was that was like the guy who at the baseball game thought it would be a good idea to have a promotion night of bucket o tequila night. Yeah, oh boy. yeah, I don't know. How'd that end? I'm guessing probably not very well if they did it. Yeah, You've been a coach for a long time in sports. You've coached a lot of teams, uh, some successfully, more successfully than not. Not all, but more successfully than not. There is a new bit of research. The University of California, Berkeley's Haas School of Business did a little analysis. Which I find fascinating stuff. They analyzed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of halftime speeches. How they got their hands on all these speeches, I guess they asked coaches to video, teams to videotape them, whatever, so they can analyze them. They then broke them down into uplifting positive rah-rah speeches and angry coach tyrant having a temper tantrum speeches. Guess which ones had the greater effect on the players following halftime? Which one do you think worked better, the uplifting, encouraging speeches or the scare-the-crap-out-of-the-player speeches?
4: Well, I I hope it's the scare-the-crap-out-of-the-players because that's generally the road I go. <laughs> it's generally, And you certainly couldn't tape it because there'd be enough um, F-bombs in it that you couldn't play it to anybody.
0: Here's but what, I don't know. Here's what they found. Researchers discovered a significant relationship between the level of negativity a coach projects during a halftime speech and second half scoring outcomes. The more negativity, the more the team outscored their opponents. Up to a certain threshold, it says. I suppose that's when the guy pulls a gun and sacrifices a goat or something. I don't know. but Or a fourth liner. <laughs> but i mean you obviously are not then surprised because that's what you could guess that that would be the case i'm a little surprised well i have seen
4: i've seen both approaches and um I, I i don't do that very much you know Bernie does a lot of the talking but um generally when i go in and shut the door people will pay attention because you can't do it all the time no but you know a lot of times i I mean, I've used the line hundreds of times, and I believe it, that the winner of this game is going to be decided in our dressing room, not the other one. And that's uh, a bit of a silent challenge, but I think we're better than them, and it's going to be up to you to prove it. Now, I've also gone in after a period when we were absolutely brutal, and by the time I'm done explaining it to them, they certainly understand it.
0: See what this study doesn't say at least what is not included in the story about this study is they they got 3, I think it's 300 and they got 304 speeches in order to study this from that they got from a variety of teams. What's unclear is what the breakdown is of how many are positive and how many are negative because to your point I think it's there are moments when a blistering speech is going to get the team's attention. So if there's 304 speeches and only 10 of them are really negative and those are for teams that need a kick in the pants and they all come out of the dressing room fired up, I'm not sure that that truly says that angry speeches work every time. They work in those particular cases.
4: Scott, they don't work every time, which is often uh, what I said is I don't go in often And do it, and most coaches don't go in often and do it because then they tune you out. But if you go in and you're right, you got to be right, right? They got to be playing bad and playing far below their potential, and you know there's more there. But if you and they know, and and they have to understand it, right? So all you're doing is calling them out because they know they're better than they are. But if you do that every game,
0: I mean, you may—I mean, it's you become John Brophy. For those who sure. remember John Brophy, yeah, who, who perpetually was crimson faced, browbeat
4: everybody for
0: the ever. former Leafs coach. Uh, seemed uh, according to everybody, they all loved him. He was a lovely guy, but he had one temperature when he was coaching, and that was boiling all the time. I, I, there were stories that John Brophy in the minors slammed a gate, a bench. He was so angry he slammed a bench on his own finger and almost crushed his finger. Yeah. And I, I can't remember which player. I think. I think it was Peter Zezel when he was playing in senior hockey, and I was talking to him one time. I believe it was Zezel who played for him somewhere, maybe with the Leafs.
4: Probably because I think he played with vibe so.
0: Uh, and I think or and Zezel may have been there or may have just recounted a story from the Leafs, but I guess in the old Maple Leaf Gardens, the uh, brophy came in one time and threw an absolute fit and then went to as he went out of the dressing room after just stripping a strip off everybody in the team slammed the door to make his point, just to finish with a flourish. Unfortunately, the door was on one of those hydraulic things, and he went to slam it, and it didn't go anywhere, and he almost blew his shoulder out. <laughs> and all the players now are, rather than sitting there in fear of John Rofi, they're all killing themselves laughing. There was another time that he <laughs> told the story, I'm sure again it was Ezel who said this, that Brophy one time came in and was irate and had a fit speech in the middle of the dressing room, and then couldn't think of anything else to do, so he just turned off the lights, <laughs> so to, and left the room. So now all the players are just sitting there in the pitch black, and all of a sudden, one of them goes, "How long do we have?" <laughs> <laughs> they, they didn't even know how much time left to get their stuff ready. With you know, it, I'm not surprised that it doesn't it, work every day. It can't. It can't. No, it you cannot. But at the same time, you know, you hear guys say, "Well, I want to play for a player's coach." I don't doubt for a second. That if you have a coach that never lets his temper go, that you don't think you can get away with anything as well.
4: That's not the definition of a player's coach. A player's coach calls the guy out when he needs to be called out. He doesn't call him out for the fun of it. And you want to play for him because you know the coach is more passionate or equally as passionate about winning and works just as hard or harder than anybody else in the room.
0: I was covering a lot more Tiger Cats a few years ago when Marcel Belfay was the coach. And if you ever met Marcel Belfay, he was one of the loveliest men, the most polite men. Never swore. Uh, Christian guy was just a, a truly, truly nice man. And I remember at practice one day, thing the team was screwing around, and it was the only time I ever saw him do this. He lost it. <laughs> he lost it. And you would be amazed at how wrapped the attention was of those players when the guy who never does this let out a bad word and threw a helmet, I think on the ground, you could have in the whole stadium, you could have heard it. Like it was, it was so effective as a coaching tool because he never, ever, ever did it except for this once. And after that, if there was not a mistake made in practice, the whole rest of the practice. So, I mean, it is. It is effective. Here, here's the here's the problem I have with this story. It's not a problem. I mean, you do a study. You're, you're looking into this. Okay. How many idiot coaches are out there now, youth coaches or whatever else, who read this and go, oh, look, the science says if I just act like a grumpy, curmudgeon buffoon screaming at my kids all the time, we're going to have the best team in football, baseball, hockey, whatever. You know there are coaches out there who are going to look at this and say exactly that. Coaches
4: with kids' teams shouldn't do that. I don't think it's effective. I think it's... Uh, never? Well, I shouldn't say never. First of all, they shouldn't be walking around with profanity.
0: No, I agree. Them. I 100% agree on that one.
4: And you have to be very careful. You really do have to be careful on how you pick your guys and pick your spots. But I think adults will react and handle it differently. I mean, you could ruin a kid. You could ruin a good kid. Not with one tie rate. On a regular basis, you could get a kid to say, "You know, I don't want to play anymore." I think when you're coaching kids, you have to be a lot more careful.
0: And I don't think you, with kids you want to be playing the psychological games. Like you see, coaches at times will say, "I'll get mad at the team when they've had a great game, to keep them on their toes," and I'll give, I'll go really light on them when they've had a bad game to encourage them. I don't, I don't know that with kids you want to be playing those sort of psychological. If a kid plays well, you tell him he plays well. Yeah. And if they're really screwing around or really not paying attention or really playing way below their level, I don't have a problem being stern with them. Again, not dropping F-bombs or stuff like that, but get their attention and say, look, that's not what we, and and again, we're not a house league either here, right? I mean, it's, it's a different thing, but, but I can see, I can see all kinds of coaches using this study using these oh, yeah. numbers to
4: justify what they want to do we've we we've done that before on the road you you walk in and you're going like we just got two points and we we'll just say you know what boys just get your gear off before the police get here and arrest us for stealing that those points we had no business winning them and you can say that to men and you can also say we deserved a better a, a better outcome we deserve points tonight we didn't get any so, you know, you have to it's a, quite a balance, but to to lose
0: it and snap on them on a regular basis, boy, they turn you out in a hurry. Do you um d- do you recall can you can you recall either from a movie or from a, your own situation or anything else? Is is there a speech that you've ever heard a coach give that resonates with you that you really remember? <laughs> or that you ever gave? Did you ever give a speech that you went, "Oh, I should write that one down. That was pretty no, good." No, I don't write anything down. I can't remember I,
4: can't remember what i said half the time i i remember my junior coach scaring me and i remember uh, the, the late ted o'field when i was playing peewee screaming at me and i don't know wh- wh- why me i well, anyway he picked we were in the godfrey's tournament and he was yelling so he turned red in the face and he picked me up and hung me on the hooks in the dressing room <laughs> and i'm telling you I, I mean i've never i never wet myself with my hockey stuff on but i was ready to well, he scared everybody. He really scared me, but he scared everybody. But I don't remember what he said, so I can't say to you that I can remember a specific event or a raw, raw speech that that moved me. But I'm not that kind of guy. I mean, I just
0: I'm trying to think. There was a, a, I'm trying to think of the name of the movie, and I can't think of it right now. Remember what? Remember
4: what Herb Brooks used to do when he had um, when I talked about this yesterday with Brad Grant. Who was that kid, the captain of the Olymp- uh, U.S. Olympic team when they won the gold medal, beat the Russians? Herb Brooks did it.
0: Um, uh, uh, it was an Italian name. Yes, it
4: is. And he never played pro. He went on to be a broadcaster and just shut it down then. And they had a deal where uh, Mike uh, Aran- uh, Aranzioni or – Yeah, something like that, Aruzioni. Aruzioni. Yeah. Yep. When I'm calling you Mike, you pay attention. When I'm calling you your last name and I'm ripping you, I'm just doing it to get the other guys going. And some coaches, I mean, that's not a new strategy or a new theory, but he kn- at least knew, you know, when I say Mike, then this is about you. Otherwise, it's about the team. But he would attack the captain, and the captain was a good leader.
0: There was a movie. as a little movie. It was not a big hit. It was... Uh I think it may still be on Netflix. i do not know really sure. It was a football movie called Facing the Giants. And we saw it one time. And it has one of the greatest coach moves of all time. And I look at that and I go, I'd love to know how many coaches have used that move after watching the movie. Because even if you've only seen the clip, if you never seen the movie, just go on YouTube tonight and just look up Facing the Giants motivational scene. And I bet you there were all kinds of coaches that have seen that clip and went, I'm using that one for sure. I'm using that one. That's one of the greatest moments in sports, inspirational, motivational ever. My fear is that this study, while well-meaning, and I don't want to tell the university and whatever not to do studies because you don't necessarily like the it results. It kicks
4: the door open all right.
0: It is going to, there because there are people who simply are not smart enough to be able to distinguish, this doesn't mean yelling and screaming makes me a better coach. Yeah. No, no, it has nothing to do with your coaching ability. That's all motivation. It's
4: got nothing to do with X and O's. Uh,
0: Facing the giants, by the way, again, just go look it up on YouTube, this scene, it's five minutes long, roughly five and a half minutes long. Uh, If you are not ready to go and run through a wall or something, or go for a 10 mile run or 10 kilometer run after watching this, then uh, you're probably not a person who's going to be easily inspired or motivated, just saying, because it's, uh, it's a beautiful scene.
1: Want to hear more? Download the podcast on iTunes or Google play and listen to the Scott Radley show weeknights from six to eight on 900 CHML.
0: Scott Radley show podcast is available on Apple podcast, Google podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also be sure you rate us and review us Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.